I get to kick off the second week of our series called Turning Points. I get to talk about the son of the famous dad that Jared talked about last week, Abraham, and his not as famous son, Isaac, right? His story isn't given near as much time in scripture. Often the only reference you hear to Isaac is um, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? He's He's the middle child in the generational thing. Okay, we know what that means. But I get to talk about him, and he was probably the age of our graduates, 17 or 18 years old when his first turning point happened, and it wasn't as exciting as high school graduation. The event that happened to him had a lot of uncertainty around it, a little bit of fear Um, perhaps some of that fear is something that we feel as a graduate, particularly after all the celebrations are through, all the congratulations and all the opening of the cards that hopefully have money in them, just cluing you in what graduates really want, right? How many of you know that? Yeah. So, but after that's all done, there you are with your life. And you've never been at that point before. And this is where Isaac finds himself in a very uncertain time, And the good news is that the outcome of his turning point at this 17 or 18-year-old age was absolutely positive. And so I was hoping that all of you would join me this morning in praying for our graduates, that they would recognize the turning point they're at, and that God would speak to them, and they would walk in the plans that he has for them. They'd experience, because his plans are always good. His plans are much better for us than some of our own. And so just praying for that and praying for the rest of us that we would all this morning let God speak to us about turning points in our life. Even the smallest decisions, even places that we have been holding back or holding out or experiencing a little fear ourselves on. So with that in mind, these two students, would you make sure those around them, would you lay hands on them? And we're going to pray and then we're going to excuse our students after we pray for these And let's pray together. Jesus, we do pray for these students, and they represent 16 graduates from Evergreen alone and many hundreds of others across our community. And Lord, we're praying for these 16 that are part of our faith community. Would you give them your wisdom? Would you speak to them? Lord, could they and would they hear your voice? Lord, would you clear out anything that's going to get in the way of your voice and help them to hear you as they take steps forward into these fantastic new adventures that you have for them. And we thank you for the power of your spirit who's going to make your presence real for them on that college campus, in that dorm room, um, living in that apartment, wherever they might find themselves. Lord, I pray they'd have a strong sense of your presence. And for all of us this morning, help us to hear what your spirit is saying to us by your word. And we pray for that in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. And we're going to let our students exit out. And could we just tell them how much we love them again? Yeah. Thanks, guys. I'm thinking the prom took out a lot of people. We saw some of those kids celebrating. I don't know how many of you remember prom days, but it was pretty fun last night. Well, we've all had turning points. We've had crossroads in our lives or watershed moments where from that moment on a decision made or a circumstance happened and our life took a different course. And the shortest distance between two points is what? 
straight line. Jared talked about this last week in Abraham's story. And any of you who didn't hear that message on Abraham's story, I loved it last week. And my favorite lesson from that was um, that your wrong turns don't have to become dead ends. You know, they really don't. And that was the message, one of the messages from Abraham's life. But he talked there about the zigs and zags of life. That our lives, whether you're walking with Jesus or not, are rarely straight lines. They're rarely the shortest distance between two points. God doesn't seem to be too interested in that. And honestly, and quite frankly, most of us don't seem to be too interested in that. Because we make a lot of decisions to zig and to zag ourselves all on our own. One leader described his life this way. My life is one long curve full of turning points. Does that sound like a zig and a zag? It sounds like a curly Q um, type of path. But my brother, Joe, some of you have met him. He's come here to speak and uh, he's my only brother, the older brother. And he has been in Spokane as the lead pastor at a church called Life Center for over 37 years, almost 40 years now. Just amazing in one community. But I want to tell you a story. You see, for the first 16 years of his life, of, of his pastoring there, he was frustrated often. He was disappointed. He was discouraged. And at the age of 41, he had a turning point. And it started with God speaking to him. You see, each Sunday he'd come home and he'd look at the classified ads, as in help wanted, as in what other job can I do? He said he'd look at those uh, job ads and he'd realize he wasn't qualified to do anything else. And, and so he'd get back at it. And God said, you can start over right where you're at. Now, God wasn't talking about a new wife, a new car, or a new church. God was telling him, you can have a new perspective. I can give you fresh eyes to see your situation completely new right where you're at. He had to look at why was he discouraged. And, and we're going to talk in just a minute about what God showed him. But this is the thing. God does want to have a conversation like that with each one of us today. He isn't bringing this word to us without that. He wants to interact with you about your story today. And he can help you start over right where you're at. Let's see what he has to say to each of us. Today, there's a couple of things I'd like to do with you. First of all, I'd like to look at Isaac's story from the Bible. And as we do that, we'll be identifying two turning points for us to think about. And then I'm going to invite all of us to think about where is a place in your life where fear has kept you from obeying God, from doing something that he's asked you to do. You've held off, you've held back, you've gotten stuck. And secondly, where is a place that you have had a hard time really believing that his promise was going to happen? That promise is maybe one that's happened long ago now in your life. And maybe some of you have even given up on it. And just like God did with Joe that day at 41 years of age, he can come today and he can speak into that. And everything can look different. So turning point number one. From fear to faith. And to look at this part of Isaac's story, we want to turn to Genesis 22 and look at a familiar story that most of us have looked at thinking about dad, Abraham, that is. And I'm going to ask you to just take your minds and think, put yourself in Isaac's shoes as we go through this story. So Genesis 22 verses 1 through 14 begin this way. Sometime later, God tested Abraham's faith. Abraham, God called Yes, he replied, here I am. 
Take your son, your only son, yes, Isaac, whom you love so much, and go to the land of Moriah. Go and sacrifice him as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I will show you. Okay, first of all, as far as we know, Isaac wasn't in on this conversation. He wasn't privy to it. He didn't hear God speak these words. So he had no forewarning about what was to come. Furthermore, neither Isaac nor Abraham understood or knew God's first words there in verse 1, that God was about testing Abraham's faith, that this was a test, that it wasn't a real emergency. And I don't know, when I thought of this, I thought about the first time I ever heard the emergency broadcast system alert. Any of you remember the first time you saw one of those? You know, and as a kid was the first time I heard it, and I was really glad to find out there was no emergency, that this was a test and just a test. And I think about Abraham and Isaac, and I think about stories in my own life. How many times do you wish that God had had an an emergency broadcast system test where he said, this is just a test and only a test? Would have that helped you at some point? Yeah, most of us, like, yes. But we get to know this. As the readers of Isaac's story, looking back, we have the benefit. God made sure that we knew this is a test. I have no intention of killing this kid. I'm not into killing kids. Okay? That wasn't his intention. This is a test, only a test. And it's one of the amazing benefits of hindsight in all of our lives, isn't it? You look back on the story and you figure out what God was really up to. So let's pick it up in verse 3 and see what happens next. It says, The next morning, Abraham got up early. He saddled his donkey. He took two of his servants with him along with his son Isaac. Then he chopped wood for a fire for a burnt offering, and he set out for the place that God had told him about. On the third day of their journey, Abraham looked up, and he saw the place in the distance. Stay here with the donkey, Abraham told the servants. The boy or the lad and I will travel a little further. We will worship there and then we will come right back. So Abraham placed the wood for the burnt offering on Isaac's shoulders while he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them walked on together, pause for the comma. I wanted you to see a picture, just one artist's rendition of this walk that they were taking. Now, The Hebrew term that Abraham uses to call his son boy or lad, and he does it a couple times in this story of Isaac's life, it is a term that could have referred to a child that was as young as seven or as old as their early 30s, but most scholars agree that it was probably closer to 17, 18, maybe in the early 20s. And one of the the reasons they think that is because dad had Isaac carry the wood. And you've got to know that they burned the whole sacrifice when they made a sacrifice. It had to be completely disintegrated. And so this was no s'mores fire on the beach. This was a big fire that had to be tended, that had to have wood added. And you kept the fire going until the whole thing was burned up. So what a walk. What a walk this must have been for father and son. Dad has the fire and the knife, and son's got the wood, and you can just hear the wheels turning in Isaac's mind. And then it's Isaac that breaks the silence of their walk. First of all, those wheels are turning thinking, "Um, we've got everything except one thing for what we're going to do here. Where's the animal? 
He doesn't say it yet, though. And then he breaks the silence with these words in verse 7. Isaac turned to Abraham and said, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. We have the fire and the wood, the boy said. But where is the sheep for the burnt offering? Can you feel that moment when he's asking dad this question? And here's what Abraham says. God will provide a sheep for the burnt offering, my son. Abraham answered, and they both walked on together. And I feel like a collective, I mean, that has got to, you could have heard the air come out in a big sigh from Isaac about this time. You can almost hear his sigh of relief in this. You see, he had no reason to doubt his dad when his dad said the Lord will provide. He had no reason to think his life was in jeopardy. He was the son of promise. He was a legacy child. He knew that he was dearly loved. He'd been waited for, clear into his parents' old age. And he knew he was the apple of their eye. They had given him no reason to doubt that anything else was going to happen. And then we continue in verse 9. When they arrived at the place where God had told them to go, Abraham built an altar. He arranged the wood on it. And then he tied his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And Abraham picked up the knife to kill his son as a sacrifice. Because a sacrifice, first they would kill it, then they would cut it up into pieces. Flay it. And then lay it out across that altar. So I asked for a picture. I found a picture that a a famous artist had done of this point in Abraham and Isaac's story. And at this moment, you see, Abraham, the, uh, the angel has just appeared. But I want you to think about the moment just before, the second before the angel spoke. And I want you to think about it from this young man's perspective. He's tied up by his dad on the altar with the knife hanging over him. What do you think he was feeling at that time? What are some of the feelings he could have had? Go ahead. Fear? Yeah. Yeah. Someone else? Yes. Yeah. Disbelief. Can't hardly believe this is really happening. Is this a dream or a nightmare? Someone else? Betrayal. Yes. Yeah, betrayal. How did this dad, who's, he's done nothing but dote on me my whole life, and now this? Someone else? Yes, confusion. Absolutely. I mean, this does not fit. This picture, what doesn't belong here? For Isaac, there, there is no frame of reference for him to get his head around what's going on in his life in this moment. This is the kind of thing that PTSD Literature would be filled with stories like this, this kind of violence at the hand of a parent. I think about what was going through his mind at that point, what he was feeling. And you know what you feel is kind of a sense of there's tremendous tension in it. But what you don't read in the account is any sense of trauma, any sense that everything is about to go in a very terrible direction. There's tension, but not trauma. And at that moment, in verse 11, it says, The angel of the Lord called him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. Yes, Abraham replied, here I am. 
Don't lay a hand on the boy, the angel said. Don't hurt him in any way. For now I know that you truly fear God. You've not withheld from me even your son, your only son. And then Abraham, he looked up and he saw a ram caught by its horns in the thicket. So he took the ram and he sacrificed it as a burnt offering in place of his son. And Abraham named the place Yahweh Jireh, which means the Lord will provide. To this day, people still use That name as a proverb, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. Tell me, do you think that Isaac remembered this event? Do you think he needed a scrapbook, a DVD, some uh, photograph to make sure he never forgot this moment? I think this was an indelible memory burned into his mind forever. And this turning point that he experienced from fear as great a fear as you might ever feel, to faith in a very short period of time. And it was this, God will provide for what he calls us to do, for what he asks us to do. It may be at the last minute, but God always provides for what he asks us to do. And I love Isaac's question because it's our question when we're faced with our own fear over whether we have enough to do what God's asked us to do. It's this. He says, we have the fire and wood, the boy said, but where is the sheep for the sacrifice? Where is the, and you fill in the blank. Where, God provides for what he asks us to do. So what does God ask you to do that you're asking him where is the where is the spouse in the promise I received from you so long? Where is the house? Where is the job for me? Where is the child? Where is the restored relationship with my husband or with my wife? I did the things that you asked me to do. Where is that? Where's the help I need? Where's the next step? We all know he's supposed to be our Lord and our Savior, the one who gives us direction, the one who helps us figure out where we're supposed to go. I'm still waiting, God. Where's the next step? Or where's the health? Where's the health? As I'm following you. So what is the fear? The fear is the fear of not having enough or not being enough, not having what we need for what God is asking us to do. You see, in the case of my brother, he had pastored for 16 years when he had this turning point. And God said, you can start over right where you're at. And the thing is, God had been asking him to do something. And for 16 years, he had not done it. He'd been asking him to start planting churches out of his church, to reach more people, and to start with his community of Spokane. And he said, the reason I didn't do that is fear. I wanted growth and to give away people and leaders meant subtraction in my book. I was afraid how, if I can't even grow this thing, how can I do that? And he would say that later, even in a survey that he took. What was the biggest obstacle to planting churches? Me. What was your obstacle? Fear. And when God gave him a new perspective, fresh eyes, He saw that he couldn't outgive God, that God would provide if he'd do what he asked. And where is he today? They've planted over 10 churches, most of them in the city of Spokane and its environs. And even now, as far away as Russia, where their next church plant is, 
And many of them just a few miles from where their church is. And Easter Sunday, how many people were there? 10,000 people at Life Center. They baptized over 500 people. And that's the lesson that Isaac was getting the benefit of from his dad's test. He got it indirectly by being that person that was going to be given. God will provide for what he asks us to do. Enough, we worry we don't have enough strength, that we don't have enough money, that we don't have enough talent. I don't have enough courage to do that, God. I don't have enough support to do that. I don't have enough people to do that. I don't have enough years after my name to do that. Where is the, and you fill in the blank. That's the question we all ask. Now, I have a question about this. What happened? You know, it was a turning point in Isaac's life. Did he continue to live this out, though, following Jesus in obedience, following God in obedience, and doing what he asked him to do? He did. You know, he, he got a wife, Rebecca, that God provided. And you know, the big promise was that they were going to have descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. That's a lot. And guess what? Rebecca was infertile. She was barren. What did Isaac do? Did he go try to make it happen some other way like his dad had done? No, he did not because he knew the Lord will provide for what he asks us to do. And he pleaded, he entreated, he prayed, he asked God. That's the only commentary on that problem that's given. He immediately went to God. And did you know that it was almost 20 years before they had their first child, a set of twins, Jacob and Esau. And oh, what a set they were. We won't get into that today. But God answered that prayer because Isaac had learned that God provides for what he asks us to do. And that's what he wants to ask us about as well. So Jared and I were raising our kids. Jordan was a um, five-year-old. He was in kindergarten. He was actually six because he was an older kindergartner. And it was April of that year. And we were to go to a four-square convention. Well, each year we prayed about whether we should go because it's an investment of time and money. And often we would. But this year, Jared had to go ahead of me. So we had prayed and we felt like God, both of us felt like God was saying the same thing. Go to convention. I have something for you there. I mean, that's fairly subjective, right? It's us just hearing God on our own. So just before convention happened, we'd already gotten the tickets, and Jared had gone on ahead of me, and Jordan became ill, and he was sick for nine days. And he, was on, he had had multiple doctor's visits. He was on multiple medications. And the night before I left, he had a fever. I was up most of the night, a fever of 104. He had fever blisters all over his lips, which were cracked and bleeding, and he, he looked terrible. That, that's my boy. And I mean, I just, I thought, I, I, should, I just need to not go. This is ridiculous. I've never left a child this sick. And, but I just kept hearing God say, I want you to go to convention. I have something for you there. I just felt it was a point of faith and I needed to act. And I left him in the care of my sister along with Hillary. And I took off and my plane flew as far as Denver. And then we were changing planes. So when I got to Denver, what do you think the first thing I did was? I mean, I was on the phone and I was calling to see how my son was doing. And my son's fever had broke about an hour after I left. And he was acting and looking more like himself, though it took him a few days to really be fully himself. And I wrote these words to the Lord on my trip, the rest of my trip on the plane. I called it another Thomas. He's doubting Thomas. (laughs) 
All the makeup in the world won't help this face, O Lord. When I have laid awake at night to fret and worry more. And then the morning lingers and good reports are heard. And I face myself with clear resolve. Never will I doubt again your word. Think that's true? No. That's not the only time I ever doubted God's word. (laughs) Just saying. But those were a mother's words. Those were... Those words that say, I have learned you will provide for what you ask us to do. And the thing is, what happened with convention? You may be asking yourself because God told us to go there, right? Isn't that why we were obeying? I have something for you there. Well, this is the funny thing. We had this sense of expectancy while we were there. Like, oh boy, what's it going to be? I don't know. You imagine, maybe you're not like me. I'm an optimist. It's always big, right? I imagine something big. But the fact is, it was the last day of convention and I don't know. I didn't have anything exciting. I'm just being real with you. I mean, you know, it was good messages and a good time with people. Get to the last morning. Jared and I go to breakfast. There's nobody in this restaurant, even though we're right by the convention center, except one other couple, this amazing couple, the Courtney's, who were toward the end of their life and amazing evangelists and just loved Jesus still. We're reaching people for Christ. And they called us over and asked us to sit down with them and then gave us a charge for the rest of our ministry. And spoke over our lives with God's blessing and words of wisdom. Something we never could have orchestrated. Something that he had just for us at that time. Go to convention. I have something for you there. God will provide for what he asks us to do. Even a little thing like that. That's not the biggest thing in our life, right? But like Isaac, we have to keep moving forward. And doing what God's asking us to do. And he'll provide. If you wait to have everything you need to obey, you will not obey. That's just how it'll work. He provides along the journey as you go, stretching each one of our faith and growing us up in the process. And that brings us to turning point number two out of Isaac's life, our last one. From fear to trust. God provides for his promises He is trustworthy, even when we try to make it work on our own, even when we try to help him out, even when we try to act on our fear. You see, Isaac had this amazing promise spoken over his life. He had heard it since he was a young kid. He heard it again when he was up on the mountain with his dad because the angel repeated it. And after all, he even had it called him. He is the son of promise. He's a legacy child. His mom and dad have spoken of this as long as he can remember The hopes and dreams of Abraham and Sarah rested on this one son. Can you feel the kind of pressure that might have felt like? I can. This son of a famous dad who expected all of God's promises to happen through him. And he's about to hear about it again in his own encounter with God. And that's where we pick it up in Genesis 26. Here's what it says. A severe famine now struck the land as it happened before in Abraham's time. So Isaac moved to Kiar, where Abimelech, king of the Philistines, lived. The Lord appeared to Isaac and said, Do not go down to Egypt, but do as I tell you. Live here as a foreigner in this land, and I will be with you and bless you. I hereby confirm that I will give you all these lands to you and your descendants, just as I solemnly promised Abraham, your father. I will cause your descendants to become as numerous as the stars of the sky, and I'll give them all these lands. And through your descendants, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. 
I will do this because Abraham listened to me and obeyed all my requirements, commands, decrees, and instructions. So Isaac stayed in Gihar. Wow. Let's just take the last part of that promise that your descendants, through your descendants, all the nations of the world will be blessed. What if God told you that? Do you feel the weight of that? That promise being spoken over your life? This son of the famous dad who'd grown up his whole life with these great expectations on him. All these things that were going to happen through him. I can almost feel the pressure mounting the older he got. But do you see right here in this promise what the pressure valve is for God's promises in our lives? It's no different for Isaac than it is for us. Two words, and he repeats them five times. Do you see them there? I will. Five times. I will. What's God saying? It's not up to you. It's up to me. So when God's given you that promise, that one that you've had doubts about, that one that you've had trouble believing, that one that because a challenge has arisen in your life or a circumstance that's made you believe it might not happen, we have to remember those words. God's promise comes with these two words, I will, not you will. It's an amazing thing. So what did Isaac do when he was faced with challenges and circumstances that seemed to put God's promise to him in doubt? Well, he did what we've often done. I know I have. Take matters into my own hands. I'm going to help God out just a little, mind you, but I'm going to help God out with his promise. This, we pick it up in Genesis 26, 7 through 11. He says, when the man, men who lived there asked Isaac about his wife, Rebecca, he said, she's my sister. He was afraid to say she's my wife. He thought they will kill me to get her because she is so beautiful. Now, I'm thinking that's a new line for some of you husbands here. But sometime later, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out his window and saw Isaac caressing Rebecca. Okay, caressing doesn't quite cover it, folks. You know what this means, don't you? They were making out. It's the kind of making out that you tell your kids not to do with their girlfriends or boyfriends. Okay, because when Abimelech saw them, this was not the polite arm around the shoulder or the pat on the arm or the peck on the cheek. This was serious making out. And when he saw him doing it, it was enough that he said, those are two lovers, not two siblings. Right? That's what happened there. And then he goes on in verse 9. Immediately, Abimelech calls for Isaac and exclaims, She's obviously your wife. Why did you say she's my sister? Because I was afraid someone would kill me to get her from me, Isaac replied. How could you do this to us, Abimelech explained. One of my people might easily have taken your wife and slept with her, and you would have made us guilty of great sin. And then Abimelech issued a public proclamation. Anyone who touches this man or his wife, will be put to death. Anybody have deja vu about this point? Anybody remember last week with Abraham? Okay, Abraham did this twice. So I guess his son learned a little bit. But God not only protected Isaac and Sarah's life through Abimelech, who said nobody should touch this man or this woman, he went on to bless them. Even though he'd acted out of fear, even though he had tried to help out God a little with his promise, He still blessed them. It says in the next few verses that Isaac planted his crops that year and he reaped or harvested. He he reaped a hundred times what he had planted. 
a hundred times. That's a huge blessing. You know what the good news is for all of us in that? Have you ever tried to help God out in one of his promises to you? He provides for his promises based on his faithfulness, not ours. That is what Isaac learned. And it's because of that he learned he could put his trust in God. Because it wasn't going to be about his perfection. It was going to be about God's faithfulness. And God went above and beyond what Isaac could have thought or imagined. He was bigger than any of Isaac's doubts in answering what he was going to do. I could share a lot of turning points that involved this in my own life, but one of them that stood out to me because we just had Memorial Day weekend was um, with my dad, which I may have shared this at one time or another. Um, I had been praying for my dad to get saved for many years, and he was in his early 60s, and it was Memorial Day weekend, and we were celebrating on Jared's parents' farm, and I got a phone call that my dad had collapsed and been taken by ambulance to Salem Memorial Hospital, and, and there he was in surgery, brain surgery, because he'd had an aneurysm. So they were working on him. All of us rushed there to the hospital, and we were praying for him and waiting for news. They came out, and the surgeon said, well, it, it is looking really good right now. We don't know what his capabilities will be till you know he comes out of sur- comes uh, out of recovery and all of that. So, but right now he's he's stable. So we all went home uh, because we weren't able to be with him or see him at that point. And then we, I was at the farm and I'd gotten home that night. I was washing dishes after our dinner and I got a phone call, and it was that the aneurysm hadn't been stopped; it was still leaking blood into his brain. And they had to do another surgery. And at this point, I was really concerned. And I remember standing at the window there at the farm over the sink and washing the dishes. And just, you know, kind of crying out to God. God, you know, you said you were going to save him. I know that that's what you do. But you said you're going to save him and you've got to keep him alive long enough for that to to happen. And what's going to happen? What's going on here? And I could hear it as clear as a voice in this room. It's not up to you. I will. I will do this. It's not up to you. And I can't describe the load of care and worry and tension that came off of me in that moment when I realized God is going to provide for his promise. And I can count on him. I can absolutely count on him and trust in him. No matter what's going on around me, no matter how bleak this looks. And the thing is, my dad did recover. The second surgery was effective. He had no residual effects after a long recovery. And it was just months later that he gave his heart to Jesus Christ. So what about you and I? I said that I'd invite you to consider your own life. Isaac, just at the age of about of most of these high school graduates that we're celebrating today, had this life-altering experience that was really his dad's test but changed him too. He experienced the truth that God will provide, even if it's at the last minute when we're doing what he asks us to do. So what has God asked you to do that you've not followed through on because You've been afraid that you won't have enough, that you won't be enough for what that is. And what God's saying to you today is move ahead with what I've asked you to do, and you'll see me provide as you move ahead with me. Isaac received a promise from God that 
oh, was over his whole life, kind of hung over his head. And when circumstances threatened that promise, its fulfillment in his eyes, in spite of giving way to fear, God came through and helped him realize that he could count on, lean on, have confidence in, and look to God to provide his, for his promises. He came to realize what God meant by those two powerful words that are part of every promise. I will, not you will. So my question for us is, what promise from God are you afraid will not happen? What circumstance or issue are you facing that has seemed to negate that promise? It's not going to happen. It's impossible. Or at the very least, you think it's in jeopardy of ever being able to happen. You see, that's what I want to pray with you about today. I want you to just consider for a moment, what's the Holy Spirit saying to you? I know that there's those of you out there who have had a circumstance in your life, a situation you're facing, an element. Maybe it's a long-held promise that you've given up on. You thought it was impossible. And God's saying, no, that's not impossible. I provide for my promises. Right now, today, he's saying to you, I will, not you will. And today he's saying, you can have enough, but you're going to have to start moving toward me. Don't get stuck. Do what I ask you to do. And as you're going, I'm going to provide. Let's pray together. 